Good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, so, uh, funny story. Well, I don't know how funny it is. You, you let me know. Um, about three months ago, as you know, just some background here. As you know, th- about three months ago, uh, on a Sunday morning, wee hours of Sunday morning, a morning that I was supposed to preach, uh, Shannon had got up to use the restroom, uh, got to the door, was going to push it over. Or push it, not push it over, but push it open. That would be impressive if she pushed it over. If she was going to push it open and she heard a snap and she fell to the ground and, and it turns out that, that she snapped her, her tibia in half, right? It like broke and then went like this. And, uh, and also broke her fibula. And uh, we had to call an ambulance and take her to the hospital. Most of you knows the story, but some, not everybody here does. Uh, had to go to uh, the hospital, and she had surgery and all that kind of stuff. And I had to call Tom Wing and say, guess what? You're preaching this morning. And he's like, what? And he did, and he killed it, and it was awesome. This morning, I get a text. And Matt Nix, who was supposed to preach this morning, in the wee hours of this morning, got up to use the bathroom, And when he got to the bathroom, he passed out, fell, and hit his head. And uh, and I said it was kind of uh, kind of funny. Uh, (laughs) And the only reason I could say that is because (laughs) only reason I could say that is because he's he's fine. But it was still scary. They had to call 911 and get an ambulance to pick him up, take him to the hospital, and of course he couldn't uh, preach. And so I got the call this morning. Guess what? You got to preach this morning. I'm like, wow, okay. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, Josh Cass, I was just talking to him. He says, pastors and their wives are not allowed to use the bathroom, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the night before Sunday anymore. <laughs> no more. Um, and so when I heard that Pastor Nick's Uh, wouldn't be able to preach, and I knew right away that I had to. I had to come up with something. And in times like those, you pray, you know what, God, what do I preach? Yes, please help that guy that needs the ambulance and all that, but what about me, (laughs) okay? What am I supposed to do? And uh, I uh, have been thinking a lot lately about the last two and a half years and the situations and the seasons that we are in right now as a church, how God is both blessing us and challenging us as a church family, how he is training us to trust him, to be totally committed to Jesus, to be totally committed to each other, his church family, uh, to be totally committed to his mission together. And here's how he's doing that. It's more obvious over the last two and a half years than anything else that he's been using trials, hard times, messed up plans. Now listen, I know that we're not persecuted and getting executed uh, for our faith like so many people around uh, the world, but God still expects us to be shaped and molded, to learn and mature, uh, to grow in our faith and in our joy in Him, in all of our trials, great or small. One of the things that I've learned um, is that it's always easy to find somebody else is doing worse than you are, right? 
And so, you know, there's a limited perspective that comes with thinking, man, those people have it way worse than I do. Who am I to complain, right? But the problem with that is it can short circuit what God might be up to in your own life. And we just don't even give any thought to what it is that we are going through, whatever trials we are facing. God uses them all to shape us and and mold us. And so uh, don't short circuit that, that process that God uses by thinking of somebody who's doing a lot worse than you are. Pray for them and then also pray Pray for yourself that you would grow in your faith, that you would grow in your joy. And and what's amazing to me is that in our little church, we have so many people. (laughs) The the percentage is amazing. The ratio is amazing of how many people are going through really hard times, like brutal, difficult times. I mean, yeah, it was rough when my wife had a stroke like uh, a couple, two and a half years ago, but guess what? Every single other elder was going through hard, hard times too. And then so many other people in the church. And, you know, we've, we've lost loved ones, people who are part of our church who passed away recently, like Sweet Ruth, who's part of the first service. You know, there, there have been some real trying times in our church family from, from death to health problems to broken relationships, to whatever, you name it. So here's the thing. God, as I look back, preparing to preach, what season are we in? I see that God is using all of these things to make us a generous community, a generous family that loves God, loves each other, and loves our neighbors. The scripture that we read this morning is something that we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, but we're taking another look with another angle. And, and this particular passage is so amazingly encouraging to me. First, because it, it's all about being a, a generous community and the, the real blessing that is. Uh, you know, <laughs> I know that it can be difficult to... Uh, talk about generosity because we sincerely don't want people to think that the church is just interested in their money. But thankfully, the gospel takes a radically different angle on generosity and it's encouraging. Second, this scripture helps us change how we view our stuff. So much of our, 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 our anxiety, so much of our our uh, anger, so much of our discouragement is related to how we view our stuff. And the perspective that we see right here is absolutely liberating. And I think many of you see that. You show me by your example. And then third, one of the cool things that, uh, that we see in this passage is, is the way the author Luke structured it. He uses a literary device that, that we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a structure that, that helps us see the, the high point in this passage and, and that it is the power of, of God in our lives and in our church community that we're going to look at. I want to start with this. By making sure that we remember how useful this is to all of us right here, right now, in our lives. And one of the names on this passage that jumps out at us is the name Barnabas. 
Man, he is a pace setter for the rest of us when it comes to grace and generosity. And you know what, gener- you know what, you know what uh, Barnabas means? It means son of encouragement. And a pace setter really is anyone who encourages others in the Lord. A Christian pace setter is anyone who encourages others to love God and to love the church and to love others more. Therefore, you know what this means? Every single one of you is a pace setter. Every single one of you have relationships where you want to encourage people to love God and people. And one way you can do that, one way that you can bless the people around you is by growing in generosity in a way that sets you free, that liberates you from the power of money and stuff. And that brings us to our first main point, that God is in the business of creating a generous community. That is what he wants us to be. And how does he do that? He changes us from owners into managers. And where do we see that in the early church? Uh, In verse 32, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, what was it that made the early Christians so radically and foolishly generous. It was a radical change in how they viewed their stuff. Instead of viewing themselves as owners of their stuff, they viewed themselves as managers. See, an owner is convinced that they earned what they have on their own. And a manager is convinced that someone has entrusted them with what they have. An owner believes that he has the right to do whatever he wants with this stuff. But a trustee believes he has the privilege to use what he has on behalf of the one who entrusted it to him. And as a result, these early Christians generously shared with others what God had entrusted to them. Now here's the temptation. It may happen consciously or subconsciously us to have an attitude that says, but I worked hard to get my stuff. No one gave it to me. I mean, I worked hard to get my job. I put in long hours. I sacrificed, you know, to, to make the money that I make. I don't know what's wrong with everybody else, but man, I earned it. Real important question, a real important question to ask ourselves at that, that point is, Who gave us the intelligence to do what we do? Who gave us the the, the energy and the ability to do what we do? Who gave us the strength and the opportunities to do what we do? It's obvious. I mean, every single breath, every single heartbeat is a gift from God. And Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians when he says, I love this. I mean, he's just hits the nail dead on. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything is from God. So here's the question uh, that we need to ask ourselves. How can we tell if we're owners or trustees? Owners or managers? Here's a good test. I've shared this with you before. Edith Schaefer 
was an author and widow of the famous Francis Schaeffer. And here's what she has to say about that. There is nothing wrong with owning an expensive oriental rug as long as you don't get upset when a drunk vomits on it. Right? Based on that, I'm an owner. I have that owner mentality. And all I ever had was cheap carpet in a rental. And let me tell you something. If you have babies and pets, worse things than vomit have happened on your carpet, right? Much worse. And instead of an attitude that says, well, I guess Jesus wanted this to happen to his carpet and his walls and his car and his condo, I get bent out of shape. But I'm pretty sure God isn't, hasn't given up on me. I'm a working process manager. And God uses babies and pets and so many other things to, to change my attitude and change my heart. And you know what? So many of you also help to set the pace. By your example, I'm, I'm encouraged by all the, the people who view themselves as managers of God's stuff, God's resources. The, the, uh, in this church, it's, it's amazing to me. I'm blown away whenever we, you know, pass the hat, so to speak, to, to do like a, a no one stands alone offering a financial gift to someone who is, has a financial need. Like right now, we pass the hat, people chip in to help out, and you guys dig deep. And, and uh, you know, they, they get blessed and they get encouraged by their family. They know that they're part of a, a generous family, that no one stands alone, that we all stand with them. And it's not only those with a lot of money who give. What I've noticed is that those who are barely making it are generous also. It's amazing to me. We also see it when people in our home groups or crowded houses take care of whoever in the group is in need. My, my family and I, we've personally been blessed by that. In addition, when a crowded house hears about someone in their neighborhood that is in need, they pray and plan how they can bless them. You know what? It is no secret that we live in a dog-eat-dog world. Look out for number one world. I've got to take care of my own world. And generosity in a self-centered world is far more powerful than you can ever imagine. But let me, let me help you try. Um, a while ago, I came across an article online by a guy named Joe Carter, and he lays out his story, the background, and, and why it matters. And bear with me, I, just, I think it's a good, a good example of what, what can happen. And here's the story. According to the Athens Review, an atheist who had threatened to sue a Texas county over the display of a nativity scene says he is completely flabbergasted that Christians from that same county provided him financial assistance for a medical problem. My wife and I had never had a Christian do anything nice for us, said Patrick Green. Just the opposite. And he gives us the background. Last month, Green, an activist with a long history of bringing lawsuits, 
related to public displays of Christian imagery, threatened to sue Henderson County if county officials allowed a nativity scene to be placed on the courthouse lawn next Christmas. Green had intended to represent himself in the lawsuit, but dropped the threat when he discovered that he had a detached retina and may lose his sight. There is no way for me to go up there if I'm blind, said Green, who lives in San Antonio, nearly 300 miles from Henderson County Courthouse. Gene said he has no insurance to pay for an operation that might save his sight and can't even pay for the exam that will confirm the diagnosis. Why waste the money if I can't do anything about it, he told the local newspaper. When Jessica Cry, a member of Sand Springs Baptist Church in Athens, read on the internet about Gene's troubles, she felt compelled to help. Cry told her pastor, Reverend Eric Graham, who contacted Green and inquired about how his church could help with the surgery. Green told the pastor he had a more immediate need. I said, if you really want to contribute something to help, we need groceries. I told my wife about our conversation, Green said. They're going to help us, Karen asked. Green thought of anything, he'd see $50, maybe $100. A few days later, the Christians made good on their promise and sent a check for $400. I couldn't believe it, Green said. I, I thought I was in the twilight zone. The money went to help pay the rent and provide necessities from the grocery store, and the contributions didn't stop at $400 either. Money is still coming in. Green is so amazed by the generosity of the Christians in Henderson County, he's sharing the story through the media and is thinking about writing a book. I'm going to call it the real Christians of Henderson County. These people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. I'm dedicating the book to my wife, the young lady who started the idea, and Reverend Graham. And then the author, this Christian author, writes about why it matters. She says, Jesus commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But far too often we get bogged down in fighting faux cultural battles like the war on Christmas and forget that the enemies our Lord commands us to love are also our neighbors. This author continues, when we take the time to show concern and charity as the Christians in my former home of Henderson County have done with Mr. Green, it can melt the hardest of hearts. And this Mr. Green went on to say, I've decided to show my appreciation to the Christian community for all their help, and I'm going to buy a star for the top of their nativity scene. And you people can figure out how to plug it in. That's just one example, and I have seen that uh, have an impact time and time again. So let me ask you, where are you with this kind of generosity? Even to people you might view as, as your enemy, or maybe people who have decided that, you know what, they are your enemy. How are you when it comes to being generous to even them? Are you a manager or an owner? Are you a working process manager like, like I am? I mean, how can we grow in this? We're getting there. But right now, know this. God is creating a family of generosity. That's what he's called the church to be. 
and he uses us to do it. So, where's this generosity come from? Well, it comes from God. And that's our next point. God is so generous, we see that he invites all nations to join his family, Jews and Gentiles, and he does this through us, through our generosity. And where do we see that? Two places. First, we see in verse 32 that God reaches out to the Gentiles. It says that they had everything in common. Now, check this out. The phrase, everything in common, isn't a phrase that had come from the Bible. It was actually a common phrase in Greek political theories. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you about this and about how Plato viewed private property as the root of all evil and that he would teach that the individual lives lives for, for society and that and therefore to rid society of evil, everything should be held in common. And he was asked to implement this theory in Syracuse, but when he did, it was an epic failure. He held on to the ideal, but eventually had to settle for reality. And so Luke very deliberately uses this phrase that the Greeks would have been very familiar with. Uh, and, and when he says the church had everything in common, he is saying, what you Gentiles tried and failed is working here in Jerusalem. What your wisdom and best effort could not pull off, God's spirit has done. The root of evil is not private property, but the love of private property. And only God can change a heart. So come and be a part of God's generous community. And then second, we see in verse 34, God also reaches out to the Jews. And he says there was not... There was not a needy person among them. And this was an, an Old Testament promise from Deuteronomy they would have been familiar with, where it says there will be no needy person among you. Luke is saying that, that the Christian church is in fact the family of God that the Lord had always planned on establishing. You know, the temple priests, they thought that they were the 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 leaders of God's family. But right here in Jerusalem, there was a community that was powerfully living out the life of the true covenant people of God. And no wonder Acts 6 verse 7 says that a large number of Jewish priests put their faith in Jesus and joined the church. Now, just a side note here. It is critical that you know that being a generous person is so much more than just giving money. This includes being generous with our time, being generous with our skills, being generous with our energy, our, our hearts, of being a loving people. And I have seen so many of you do this. You visit people in the hospital, you fix their cars, you help them you know, clean their house, provide meals, call just to check in, babysit, help with uh, uh, home repairs and, and help people with their, their, their uh, resumes or help people with their, their estate planning or, and so much more. So let me tell you, thank you. Thank you. You may not realize just how encouraging it is for you to use your time and your skills and your efforts to bless others. And so we need to keep asking ourselves, 
Am I continuing to be generous with my time and my skills and my, my love? God is so generous. He invites people from all nations to join his family, and he does that through your generosity. Now, how does God make us a family of generosity? That's our last point. The peak, and, and the peak and the power of God's generosity is the gospel. The, there's no peak, there's no, there's no power in just saying, be generous, here's a Bible verse, see you later. There's no power in that. The Bible says this, here's where it says it, now do it, later. It never just leaves you with just what to do. It reminds you of what Jesus has done. That is the power that, that we need, not just go do it. You know, Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? Ultimate act of sacrificial generosity for us. The cross is the high point of God's generosity. And it is the power for generosity in our lives. The gospel is the power that sets us free to be generous. It changes us from owners to managers, from greedy to generous. That's why we will, that's why we will never, ever move beyond the gospel in this church. We will never move beyond to something that's supposedly uh, deeper than the gospel or supposedly you know, more uh, utilitarian or practical than the gospel because there isn't anything. And if you catch me doing that, you, you better call me out on that. If you don't, you don't love me. And if you feel uncomfortable calling me out on something, then ask me nicely about it, okay? And we'll talk. We need to be constantly soaking in the gospel, peacefully resting in God's presence because of what God has done through the cross. So when a friend or a family member or a neighbor or even an enemy goes after you with complaining or they go after you with, with, uh, with slander, instead of our, our natural knee-jerk reaction of becoming uh, defensive, we meditate on the gospel. We remember, when I was an enemy of Jesus, he loved me and sacrificially gave himself up for me, paid the price for my sin. How in the world can I condemn this person when God did that for me? Right? That leads us to be calm and to treat that person, even if it's someone who's made an enemy of you, it leads us to be generous towards them and gracious towards them. And God works through that to soften people's hearts. In the early church, uh, verse 33, with great power, it says, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That right there is the high point 
See, there were three parts to this, to this verse. The first part, with great power, the apostles. And the last part, great grace was upon them all. And obviously there was great power and much grace because they were sharing everything that they, that they had and there were no needy people among them. But look at the phrase right in the middle. This is the peak of a deliberate structure used in this writing. And it says they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they were telling people about the life-giving, life-changing, life-saving power of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has triumphed over death, that he is risen, that he is alive. There's power in that. But why didn't they mention the cross? Well, commentators said they didn't have to. It was the giant elephant in the room. These people knew that they themselves had blood on their hands. Because on Palm Sunday, the people welcomed Jesus as their king who had come to save them. But five days later, on Friday, they cried out, crucify him. And on the cross, they mocked him. Hey, if you are the son of God, why don't you save yourself and climb on down? And at three in the afternoon, they were there when darkness filled the land. At three in the afternoon, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what's going on here? Remember the, the night before the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus was praying and was in so much agony. Blood was dripping from his pores like sweat. What was it about the cross that Jesus was dreading? What, was, it, was it the pain of the cross? Because it was painful. It was torturous. Was it the shame of the cross? I mean, that was reserved for the worst people in, in society. Well, that's an important part of it, but it was more than that. The worst thing for Jesus was not the pain or even the shame of the cross. The worst thing for Jesus was being forsaken by his father. Being cut off from the love of God. It was hell. Now this truth right here is not just theory. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not something that, you know, important just to, to remember. This has very real implications for your life. If you are a Christian, brother or sister, I know some of you feel forsaken. You feel ripped off. Something, someone or something robbed you of your joy. It could have been a disease, a major failure, a financial crisis, a broken relationship, and the result is fear. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's depression. The reason I know is because I've been there. We all have. And I'm not going to stand up here and say, turn that frown upside down and throw a Bible verse at you. Right? There's no power in that. None at all. I'm not going to just try to snap you out of it. Just say, stop it. Only God can change your heart. So I want to point you to the solution. Go to the cross. 
hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why was Jesus forsaken? So that you would never be forsaken. So that you would know that God would never, ever let you go in the midst of your worst trial in life. But there's more. Have you ever felt like the biggest loser in Christian history? Yeah, I have. But know this. When you are in the midst of feeling your lowest, like the biggest loser ever, remember this. That our loving Father, our Abba Father, looks at you and says, you are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And nothing can ever change that. I knew you and loved you before I created the universe. And I am determined to make you my child and to keep you as my child. I love you so much that I sent my son Jesus to live the life that you could not live and he lived it for you perfectly and give you credit for it. I loved you so much that I sent my son to die the death that you should have died because I wanted to have a relationship with you. On top of all of that, I sent my spirit to live within you I sent my spirit to pursue, pursue you in your darkness and in your struggle to grab your heart and to keep it forever. And God says, so when I look at you, I see you clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And God says, I love you. And I know the problems that you are going through and that, and that they are hard but this can be an opportunity for people to see my power in your weakness. This is an opportunity for you to grow in your trust in your Savior. And even though right now it's dark, you can't see anything but the pain right in front of you, I am with you. You may not feel like it, but how you feel doesn't determine whether or not he's with you. He's still with you whether you feel like he is or not. And one day you will see all the good that has come out of your suffering, just like Jesus. The murder of God the Son was the worst sin, the worst act in human history. <clears throat> Ended up being the most beautiful thing in human history. If God could do that in and through Jesus, don't you think that he can do that in your life? Whatever it is that you're going through? Do you see how there's so much more power in that other than do this or stop it? Bible verse. Then for those of you who are here who may not have yet put your trust in Jesus, I encourage you with the rest of us to look to the cross and hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why was he forsaken? So you wouldn't be. So you don't have to ex experience the separation from God, that, that, the hell that that is, the judgment that that is, the wrath that that is. <clears throat> look to the cross and trust in him if you've never done that. And know this, that we, we want to give you room to process that. 
All of us are in process. Keep showing up. Keep hanging out with the community of faith. A bunch of people who know that they're messed up or should know that they're messed up and need the grace of Jesus just like you do. The saying goes, the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, even though there is a process, and most of the time people kind of gradually come to faith, don't let that mislead you. There's a very real urgency to the gospel, a very real urgency for all of us to respond to the good news. There will come a time when it will be too late to respond. And the problem is that no one knows when that time is. You don't know when your number's up. So I encourage you, brother and sister in Christ, I encourage you, those of you who have not trusted Jesus yet, put your faith in Jesus. God is creating us to be a family of generosity. And he does that through his generosity to us through Jesus. God is so generous, he invites all to join his family. And the peak and the power of God's generosity is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done and is doing. Trust him. And when you see how generous he's been to you, you will be generous to others as well. And God will receive all of the honor, all of the glory, and all of the praise. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I, I, uh, on behalf of our church, um, I confess that, that so often of the time, uh, we live our lives and going through the motions and we forget how generous you have been to us and it affects the way that, that uh, we treat the people that you've called us to love. You've called us to represent Jesus and his kingdom. And so God... Because we fail so often, we are desperate for your grace. Thank you that you so freely give us grace. God, I pray that you would constantly remind us of what it took to save us. Nothing less than the life and death of of God the Son. And God, I pray that that would fill us with an appropriate humility and an appropriate confidence to be generous towards others, to love the people that you've placed in our lives and to represent you well. God, we pray that you would use us to advance your kingdom of grace in our neighborhoods and around the world. Heavenly Father, we pray 
that as a result of, of gathering together in this room to hear about Jesus, that, that you would make us more like Jesus. And God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not put their faith and trust in, in Jesus, that you would give them the faith to do that, that you would give them the courage to follow King Jesus, to look to Jesus as their Savior, as, as, their, as their Lord, as, as their King. God, help us as a church to be a preview of your kingdom in the world. And fill our hearts with great joy because you are the greatest joy and blessing that we could ever imagine. Change us this morning. We pray these things in your name.